I'm Lauren Hunter. And I'm Kate Vlasic. And this is Generation BSC, the podcast where we are deep diving back into our deep love of the Babysitter's Club book series, one book at a time. This week, we are up to book 27, Jesse and the Super Brat. Um, this was released in September 1989, and it is one of the ghost-written books. So we are not quite to the point where ghostwriters have fully taken over, but there are a couple as we get closer to that stage that have been ghost-written. Um, I don't know. I This is, comes from zero knowledge, and it feels to me probably like this is when things got overwhelming and we started to have to have people step in now and then, and then it became sort of a permanent plan. What do you think? Amy? Yeah, I mean, I that would be my guess, too, is like, because we're what? We're book 27 with two super specials, you know, Anne's probably at the point where she's like, I love these girls, but it's also really hard to have to come up with a story a month and write the whole book and all of that. So yeah, my guess is it was starting to be like, this is more of a machine, like, let's bring some other people in who can help <laughs> for, you know, yeah. for all intents and purposes. Did you notice at all? Uh, I I try to go into the books, again, peek behind the curtain. I try to go into my first reading as cold as possible, not looking anything up, not having any background, just so I can, you know, go with first impressions. And I will say I was pretty pleased with myself because I was like, huh, that just seemed slightly off and not in, in a tangible way that I could really put my finger on, but just something seemed just a little bit... Um, I mean, off for lack of a better yeah. word. Well, I think the thing that I thought was really interesting that I noticed, and like I also don't do any real like beforehand research or even reading the back of the book. I always just sort of like read the book and it is what it is. Same. Um, one thing that I noticed as I was reading in this book and you know reading back through my notes this morning before we started recording, like it's like the second page. Jesse's talking about what the Babysitters Club is, and you know, going into that more deep dive that is usually in the second chapter. I mean, she does go back to it to introduce mm-hmm. all the girls, but like, there's definitely a very set like formula to how these books are written. You know, it's like first chapter introduce you know what all the kids are obsessed with in this book and who the narrator is. Second chapter, what the Babysitters Club is and who all the babysitters are. You know, like a couple more chapters, just the general story. You know, the next chapter is, you know, one of the other babysitters at their job and how it's sort of related to the main story, but not really. But we needed some other girls to be doing some stuff. And then like the rest of the book. So I thought it was interesting that like the first one that's like really ghost written is not really following the formula that we've come to know and love. So I thought that it was a little bit weird. And I don't know if that may be like they sort of correct that in the future. We'll have to pay attention to that on more ghostwritten books. But like it definitely did not feel exactly the same as the rest of the books that we've read to date, for sure. I agree completely. And I I, I think it's really unlikely that I would have noticed that as a kid. I mean, mm-hmm. not even that. I, I, I know I didn't notice because – we, I didn't really get into the ghostwriting of it all until, you know, we started doing this. And then it was one of those things like, oh, I mean, obviously, right. <laughs> produced a book a month for like a decade. Uh, that makes total sense. But the thing that I noticed with this one, like you said, not really following the formula, and this was one of the places that I did note felt just a little funny, was that we, um, we didn't really get a subplot with the other girls. It was, the subplot was Jesse's 
ballet, which mm-hmm. was tied into the main plot. And actually, I noted that because I appreciated it because mm-hmm. it didn't feel like a shoehorned attempt to to get the other girls in there. And then the, the themes were a little bit stronger because it was all the same girl, you know, dealing with it. I, and the other girls definitely still made appearances and made impressions. Well, Mallory, at least. Um, yeah. But and Christy being Christy and Karen for sure, which we will get into. But there wasn't really – it stayed pretty focused on Jesse mm-hmm. uh, in, in, in obviously in ways that are kind of ridiculous, which we will again get into. But that actually I really appreciated. That's something that, you know, we've, we've noted a couple of times that we wish there was more time dedicated to that – that big story mm-hmm. and I think I think that this one really delivered on that so you know pluses and minuses in terms of that non-adherent adherence to formula and things feeling just a little goofy I I, I, I noticed it a lot in the descriptions of the girls too where mm-hmm. they just didn't seem as well fleshed out but that is I don't know I, I also want to give some grace to you know, the first time ghostwriting a series, especially one under high deadlines, like these obviously were, it takes a little time to find the voice. So mm-hmm. I, I'm i going to be curious to see how that develops as well. Yeah. All right. So now that we've uh, talked overall, you know, behind the scenes as much as we possibly can, let's dive into the back of the book description and see what actually happens in this book. Stony Brook has gone star crazy. Derek Masters, an eight-year-old regular on a hit TV sitcom, has moved to town. Everyone's wondering what a real live TV star will be like. Will he drive to school in a limo? Jessie can't believe it, but even stars need babysitters, and she's the lucky club member to watch Derek Masters. Even though a lot of the kids at school call Derek a spoiled brat, Jessie likes him immediately. He rides bikes and eats junk food just like a normal kid. But he has exciting stories about Hollywood, too. Pretty soon, babysitting and ballet start looking kind of boring next to TV scripts and cameras. Maybe Jesse would like to be a star, too. I I mean, overall, yeah, there's some weird kind of details there. For example, the limo thing that did not come up once. Yeah. Um, And the the fact that he has exciting stories about Hollywood, that's kind of a major plot point that he doesn't and does not want to talk about those. So that's, you know, but overall I'd say pretty, pretty accurate and close to the. Yeah. Not, not overly dramatic. Definitely taking some liberties with what the actual plot is, but like still related to what the actual plot is. (laughs) And yeah. And I think the energy level, like you said, is right on par with where the book is. So that makes sense. Um, All right. Uh, why don't you tell us what actually happens and fill in that missing gap? Okay, I will do that. Okay, so the Jesse specific plot. So the book kicks off with the introduction of Friday Night Family Show PS162, which stars Derek Masters, a boy from Stony Brook, when, Je- when Becca makes the entire family watch it with her. Jesse is immediately obsessed with Derek and can't wait to discuss him at the next VSC meeting, where, before she has a chance to even bring him up, they get a call from Derek's mom looking for a babysitter when Jesse is the only babysitter available. Jesse's starstruck but immediately realizes Derek is just a normal kid and older brother to his younger four-year-old brother, Todd. 
Jesse is there for Derek over several babysitting jobs as he has issues readjusting to life in Stony Brook and tries to help him deal with a boy in his class named John that plays a pretty terrible pranks on Derek, who Jesse christens the eponymous super brat. More on him later. Jesse and Derek also get close as they bond over auditions, since Jesse is in the throes of auditioning for Swan Lake at the Stony Brook Civic Center. And Derek suggests Jesse try modeling and acting in commercials to get a start like he did. Jesse distracts herself with this option to avoid thinking about not making the show, but finally confirms ballet is her passion when she is cast in the core as a Swan Maiden. So the Babysitter's Club generally, although, as you pointed out, Lauren, <laughs> it's sort of still <laughs> Jesse-specific. Um Maybe a little less Jesse-specific, but anyway. So it's the book where everyone's obsessed with Derek and being a star. Derek has a rough time at a few babysitting jobs, with the Pike triplets lashing out at him while they play badminton, and Derek trying to avoid going to the school playground with Claudia. Claudia helps get Derek to a good place with four boys in his class during that playground trip, and he starts to turn things around at school. Karen also gets in on the quote-unquote being a star hype and puts on a play with Hanny and Amanda when Christy won't introduce her to Derek. The book wraps up with a breakfast surprise and goodbye party when Derek is cast in a TV (laughs) movie and has to head back to L.A. early. All of the kids in Derek's class and all the kids in the neighborhood come to the party and have a great time. When Jesse comes to say goodbye and break the news that she's not going to be a model, Derek finally admits that John the super brat was actually him, and he was describing the things he did in retaliation to the kids at school for being mean to him. A lot. Yeah. So I, I was funny reading this book because I, I haven't listened to our exact predictions, but I know I predicted that Derek was the super brat. So reading the book, I was like, Oh no, I was wrong. Derek's not the super brat. And then it turned out that he was the super brat. And I was like, okay, I was totally right. Although I never actually read this book. So I am sure that I read this one and I had the exact same thought. I was like, oh, we were like going hard on Derek being like a spoiled child star, mm-hmm. like demanding stuff. And so when he was a totally sweet kid, I was very much going, hmm, okay, so we missed the mark big time on right. that. Uh, And even with him being the quote-unquote super brat, there's – I was pleasantly surprised with how much space and grace there is for Derek in this book. And I think that that's really one of – I I mean, this is all about fame and stardom and all of that. That's sort of the big overarching theme in this one. And I I really liked that it was very much at a careful-what-you-wish-for type Mm -hmm. of place rather than a – look how cool it is that he's this uh, celebrity or the other extreme that we often get in stories like this where it is, you know, what a terrible person because they're they're famous. I I was pleasantly surprised with the nuance, like I said, that, mm-hmm. the, that he's allowed to be um, both a sweet kid and a normal kid and a TV star and recognizing that that is very much just a job um he even says that at one point Mm -hmm. as well as letting him you know screw up the way that a kid would when when things get rough when things get hard and I I really really liked that and so I I don't know about you but I know again no I would not have picked up on this as a kid but it was about halfway through that I started to get an inkling hmm maybe John is Derek um (laughs) And, like, it wasn't in exactly subtle from a, an adult perspective. And to make matters more like, oh, I'm, I'm following where this is going, I remembered back immediately to the beginning, which 
admittedly was maybe 50 pages earlier. So it wasn't like, you know, three weeks ago. But when he he asked Jesse at the very beginning, you know, should I retaliate? Mm -hmm. And her advice was no. So it obviously makes sense that a kid that age would create this persona to hide the things that he doesn't want someone that he clearly cares about and respects Mm -hmm. to to know that he was doing. Um, So what about you? How did how did that play out for you? Yeah, so I think I think that you are 100% right about that. I thought it was definitely interesting to get that perspective of like, oh no, there there is this other super bet, but there is that, you know, Derek did ask Jesse if he should retaliate. So like, you kind of get that inkling like you were saying, and I think um I think it was it made sense that he would be telling these stories, although I don't really understand why he was telling stories about the bad things he did because Jesse was already on his side. So it's not like he needs to like get her more on his side by making the kids seem even worse. Cause like, obviously the kids are doing mean things to him regardless. So like, why did he, I can understand from an eight year old's perspective, why he retaliated, like mm-hmm. fully understand. But like, why is he telling Jesse about the bad things that he did? Cause like he can just tell the truth about what those other kids did to him and not even mention what he did back and still have her be sympathetic to him, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. I sort of thought of it more like um, he had a guilty conscience Mm. and he knew that Jesse wouldn't approve of what he was doing. So he felt like he had to, you know, get it out. And uh, I don't know. It definitely was not, you're exactly right. It definitely was not a play for sympathy. Right. Um, Because he, or I mean, I guess a little bit, but it wasn't like, manipulative in that way where it wasn't right. like yeah he, he was, wasn't telling her that to like up the stakes like like I said he could just tell her exactly what the kids did to him and she'd be fully like yeah that's terrible I'm so sorry for what you're going through like how can I help she like she, she didn't need to hear him say like oh also this kid did this to make her like actually care about him because she already did exactly but I think that that's pretty common I mean I certainly know when I feel guilty about something I feel the need to confess it or talk about it um, just because it takes up for someone with my anxiety brain it takes up a lot a lot of space Mm. and I uh, you know as an adult I have far better coping mechanisms and I have people that I have developed relationships with you for example that I know that I can talk to without judgment and Mm -hmm. that doesn't mean you're going to approve of everything I ever do right one of the things that I love about our friendship and about our friend circle in particular is that um, we are honest with each other. I often refer to you as my get a grip friend. Um, <laughs> I have a number of get a grip friends who, you know, I if something like this would, was happening or if I was acting in a way that I wasn't proud of, I know that the people I care about will understand and you know, treat me with compassion the way that Jesse does Mm -hmm. and also tell me, hey, knock it out. That's not, you know, not what you should be doing or, you know, maybe gentler than that, depending on the situation. But so I think that there's a level of that for Jesse, that he respects her so much that he wants to confess. He knows what he's doing is wrong. So he wants to get it off his chest in some way. But at eight, you don't really have the yeah. You know, wherewithal. No, I, that's, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> that's a very good point. I'm not giving Derek, you know, I'm not putting Derek in like his actual position. I'm judging him 
not even really judging him, but like thinking about it from the same perspective that like you and I would be having this conversation, uh, you know, if, right. if one of us was doing stupid things like he's doing. It's like, no, he's an eight year old. He doesn't really think about it the way that we might. <laughs> so, yes. OK, I'm, I'm going to cut him some slack. <laughs> I love that you called out in the plot description that this is the book where everybody's obsessed with fame and TV stars. I think to the series credit, Derek, as you mentioned uh, in your predictions last week, does come back and is a character that we see um, not frequently, but at least, you know, he pops up in in at least one other book. And I would imagine, well, I I don't know why I'm saying that. I don't I don't have any idea. But I because he pops up in at least one others, Mm -hmm. it would be unsurprising if he popped up, you know, every once in a while throughout. And the TV show that he is on never gets mentioned again to to my recollection so it actually does in California Girls or whatever that oh, one's called because Jesse's actually on the show spoiler alert oh. as an extra yeah because the, the thing that was interesting about reading this book is like Jesse basically goes through the same like ups and downs and considerations of maybe I want to be an actress or a model instead of a ballet dancer she does the exact same thing in that California Adventure book because they're actually in LA and so she's like oh I'm gonna hang out with Derek because I love him like not love him love him but like because they're good friends from the babysitting um and so she ends up like going to visit the set and you know I think I think she goes once and then she and Mallory go together and when she goes the first time she's just like hanging out with Mrs. Masters and Todd while Derek is working and it's like oh this is cool this is fun and then she and Mallory go back another time and they need extras and Mallory's like oh I'm totally gonna get it I look like a California girl now because I dyed my hair blonde that's gonna wash out (laughs) as we've discussed before and we'll definitely get into there but like Jesse gets picked to like be an extra on the show so it like reinvigorates this whole like maybe I could come to LA and be a star and then by the end of the book she's like no I'm a ballet dancer (laughs) so it's kind of interesting there are these like parallel storylines not parallel like the exact same storyline because like it was the same thing with um Marianne and the bad luck mystery Mm -hmm. and um Christie's mystery admirer like same story basically so they definitely get to a point where they're like we could use this again right although with Jesse's story when it comes back around like it kind of does make sense because she's again caught up in like oh I'm in LA and I get to be on this TV show and like I as an 11 year old I could totally understand going through that same you know machinations of should I be a star should I not be a star do I want to be a ballerina or do I want to be an actress so that makes more sense yeah that totally makes sense and I'll be curious once we get there to see if it's just a flat-out retread or if they you know, reference that she had gone through this before and now seeing it live reinvigorated that, as you said. So that'll be something to keep an eye on. Um, Speaking of carrying over plot points or not, I guess this is more of a random observation, but did you notice that they didn't mention Mimi at all? Yes. And I was going to say, this was a nice, like, follow-up to Claudia and the Sad Goodbye and that it was, like, more of one of those, like, lighter, fluffier books where it's a little bit more fun and a little bit less serious. But, like, the fact that there was no mention at all was surprising. And I can't help but wonder how much of that goes back to how the planning and writing of mm-hmm. these came out and the ghostwriter. And if, you know, maybe Mimi's sad goodbye wasn't planned or they hadn't decided when that was going to come within the right um, the thing and the ghostwriter did not know to mention it. But it was just glaringly obvious that that's such a massive life event for 
I mean, obviously Jesse would have been the least affected, but it it felt glaringly obvious, especially when she was describing Claudia. Mm-hmm. Typically, I mean, for example, when she was describing Christy, Emily Michelle and her adoption got a call out. Right. And Mimi was just nowhere to be found in there. So, uh, again, I'm going to give some benefit of the doubt, I guess, mm-hmm. uh, around around how that process probably worked out. But it did feel very, very strange to me. Yeah, definitely agree. I thought overall, Jesse handled things pretty level-headedly, which is in pretty in character for her. Uh, she did get a little starstruck at first, but obviously the plot was very, you know, about her re- recognizing that he is just a kid. And she realizes pretty quickly that, you know, he doesn't want to talk about work. And she does make some really stupid decisions like bringing Becca that was just I, I I mean I get that she's 11 but that seems really obviously like a bad call she brings Becca to the a babysitting job with him because Becca can't wait to ask questions about her crush on the show Lamont and from the second she gets there it's super clear that Derek just like shuts down well actually and, it's not because they first talk about school and what the class is like because Becca is that's in the true. same grade and then and they're having a great conversation, and then Becca changes the subject to Hollywood and the show, and that's when he shuts down. So it I feel like it wasn't totally bad to bring Becca. I think Jesse probably should have put a little bit more thought into it, but I think it did give Derek a little bit more comfort about going back to school because he was able to hear about what it was like because he hasn't been there for a year. So that's a from really that point. perspective, and Jesse did ask Mrs. Masters and Derek before she brought Becca. She didn't just bring her out of nowhere. So I at least appreciated that. But yeah, she definitely should have put more thought into it. Right. Or at the very least, you know, given Becca more prep and like really laid out, hey, he does not like to talk about this. Um, And and you're right. She does do a pretty good job of attempting to shut that down once it's clear that he's uncomfortable by bringing them over to the Pikes, which, you know, turns into its own kind of disaster when – Mallory sets things off by acting like a total fucking weirdo. That's exactly um, what I wrote in my notes. <laughs> I I, I kind of loved it, actually. Um, but, yeah, I mean, clearly, and Jesse is very, like, cut it out. And I just kept, couldn't, I couldn't help but keep thinking, like, this kid's eight. Like, right. I, I, I mean, I would understand that level of hero worship or starstruckness if he was, you know, 16 and like the teen heartthrob on, Mm -hmm. you know, a Family Ties type show or something along those lines. But at the same time, this was another place where it was where I appreciated the the subtlety of the difference of Jesse and Mallory's approach to Derek or I guess preconceived notions of Derek and, and their initial like uh, taking it to a different level than as opposed to Claudia, who Claudia at 13 is, you know, a little bit past that. I think she, she's obviously a little bit intrigued by the fact mm-hmm. that, you know, he's a on a TV show. Who who wouldn't be? That's not – I can imagine that some parents in town are intrigued by that. And she handles it much better. She doesn't ask him anything. She just takes him to the park. She really encourages building those friendships with the other boys where Jesse is still more in a how dare they mode. So I I like that they don't overly comment on that. But at the same time, you really do feel the difference between the younger members Mm -hmm. and the older members of the club. Because as we've talked about many times, you know, age 
becomes far less of a factor the older that we get. But 11 to 13 is like worlds of difference. And then when you factor in 8 to 11 and then 8 to 13, that's, you know, night and day. Definitely. Yeah, I definitely did appreciate Claudia in this book. You know, like we always say, there's always a couple like sort of one-off babysitting jobs that are maybe related or not as related to the main plot. But I feel like Claudia's babysitting job was like the perfect addition to the Derek plot line in this book because, like you Mm -hmm. said, she was just very like normal for the most part. You know, she, she didn't really bring up anything about the show or Hollywood or, you know, being a star. And she just took him to the the part the playground at the school and you know he was obviously not very comfortable being there and she was like what's going on what's the problem and like encourages him to like talk to the boys that show up instead of like not you know trying to get away from them or leave and like sort of helping foster that relationship and like inviting them back to their house so that and I I almost I don't know that they like necessarily say this in the book but like Claudia clearly knows that like showing these kids that Derek's just a normal kid is exactly Mm -hmm. what he needs in that moment. And, like, I think that Claudia is really perceptive and really smart about doing that as opposed to Jesse, who still sort of sees him as a star who's also a normal person as opposed to just a normal person. And I I really appreciated that from Claudia's chapter, I guess. Yeah, I think that that's one of the things that that sort of gets overlooked when it comes to Claudia is that, yeah, she may not be, well, they do point out that, you know, she's not um, stupid, that she has a really high IQ, mm-hmm. that school's just not her thing. And I think what sometimes gets lost is, well, largely because, you know, these are from a kid's perspective, but she is really one of the most um, people savvy of mm-hmm. the babysitters and, and her emotional intelligence just naturally, like I don't, she obviously hasn't had any like training on that. <laughs> right. But, and that being said, I think her level of emotional, natural emotional intelligence and natural uh, ability to read and understand people and their motivations and foibles and all of that fun stuff, even if it's not, you know, consciously thought out, is really one of her biggest strengths. And looking back, I I think that's one of the reasons I wanted to be like Claudia so much, Mm -hmm. because that is something that clearly this is what I do for a a living in my real world in my real life (laughs) job um that that's something that's really meaningful to me so I I want to make more of an effort to shout out when she's able to let her natural intelligence shine even if it's in a completely different way than Janine who also does not exist in this book it really is weird how little Claudia is mentioned given what we just had and I know we already touched on this but like the more I think about it as we've been talking is like there's like nothing about her basically like aside from her chapter like she hardly gets any sort of like acknowledgement at all let alone an acknowledgement that she just lost her grandmother who was like the most important person in her life it's just weird I think that there's that's pretty on par with the rest of the girls, too, or their descriptions, like I said, they felt a little 2D, a little flat. Mm-hmm. They were sort of boiled down to, I mean, they always were sort of boiled down to, Marianne's the sensitive, romantic one. Claudia likes art and junk food, and she can't spell. Christy's bossy. Um, Dawn's an individual, you know, those yeah. those things. But that really felt like the only note that they get. And then Dawn and Marianne are just... I mean, they're mentioned once or twice when they're doing the prep for the 
breakfast going away party, and they they are just non-existent mm-hmm. in this book. And I noticed a couple of times, definitely in two different places, I may have noticed or I may have missed a couple, but a couple of the descriptions were like, Christy, well, she's Christy. Karen, <laughs> yeah. well, she's Karen. And I'm like, okay, so what? What do, if you haven't read... Right, I hope this part- isn't your first Babysitter's Club book because you will have no idea what that means. Exactly, exactly. I think circling back to the um, Derek, you know, retaliating and, and understanding that, I couldn't help but think a lot about where we are in the world today. Um, you know, thinking back to Michelle Obama's famous, they go low, we go high speech and how in recent times, there's been a sort of not a reckoning, that sounds really negative, but sort of a reexamination of that uh, concept. And we're now talking more about reconciliation comes after accountability. Mm-hmm. And I mean, obviously, that is a, a far bigger conversation, a far um, more complicated one than, you know, an eight-year-old playing pranks to retaliate on the mean kids at school. Right. And I couldn't help but draw that comparison a little bit, that it did, that Jesse's perspective, and I think it's interesting, coming from one of the very few POC characters, that 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 inclination is go high, don't fight back, when we saw in some of the other books, um, particularly around, you know, Betsy Sobeck, mm-hmm. uh, and with Mallory and the twins, the, um, that that the solution was to fight back or fight back on their level a little bit. Yeah. Um, I don't know that I have super anything super intelligent to say about that other than to just call it out. Um, I did post-reading take a look, and Jan Carr is another white woman. She looks to be right about the same age as Anna M. Martin, which from a production standpoint makes sense. You want If you want to keep the, the tone and voice similar mm-hmm. in these ghost-written books, you want to stick to someone who is very similar to the author and uh, it's still again we get to continue to re-examine some of our preconceived notions some of the ways we think about these things and I'm I'm certainly still learning um and and re-examining my own biases every day a big one for me currently is recognizing how much propaganda has really sort of steeped into my brain through, you know, various law and orders and SVUs over the years. And my mom loves true crime. So that brought up my, you know, raised me with that obsession. I think that we've talked both of us before about my favorite murder and how we like all of that. Um, I mean, this is a tangent, but it, it ties back to that same idea that we get to really, I'm still working on, I should say, re-examining some of those things and it's interesting how often I'm able to re-examine that on this children's book series. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. It's It's been very interesting. I mean, even since we started talking about this project, it's we've sort of shifted the way that we think about these books and talk about these books. And I, it's been really interesting to be able to have that sort of deeper conversation and deeper thinking and revelations and all of that because yeah when we first got into this it was like oh it'd be so much fun to read the babysitter's club book and just talk about it and now it's like oh there's a lot of extra like layers of things that we weren't really thinking about before or at least not thinking about as much as we are now and like actively 
trying to learn and you know view things through a different lens and it's it's been really really interesting to see just how many ways that we're able to do that with like you said this children's series which is not at all what we expected and it's especially interesting for me when you take into account what different fans want from the series both the books and the tv show in particular I participate in some babysitters fan club groups, and it's really been interesting for me to see what's important and valued to different people. And there are definitely a a not insignificant subset of fans who want the books to remain in amber and be exactly what they were when they when they read them Mm -hmm. and are very, very attached to certain details. Uh, That's one of the big complaints I've seen around the show is you know, why did they have to change anything? Dawn has long blonde hair. When for us, we were excited about that change Mm -hmm. because to me, the long blonde hair isn't what Dawn is about. That's, you know, a hair color. Right. Um, And for some people, that is so important to their memory, so important to their experience of the book that, I mean, it took me a little bit of time to sort of reconcile that you know my knee-jerk reaction was oh nobody wants to see progress and blah blah, blah, blah. (laughs) and you know I had to really step back and recognize that that people want different things from their entertainment and I can absolutely respect someone who comes back to babysitter's club or continued to read babysitter's club in a lot of the cases for the nostalgia factor for the somewhat easy entertainment in a world that is more and more having to reckon with some very complicated things and I I get that completely mm-hmm. it's just it's been fascinating and it's been something for me to continue to be aware of as we're reading these books and you know taking it to a deeper level understanding that there are definitely people who are not engaging in that way at all and that's right. totally fine and I think they're you know, we, we've talked about this before many, many times as well, but it's really one of my favorite things about the podcast world is that we have so many different voices and so many different opportunities and opinions. And, and if there's, you know, if you don't want the deep dive, a feminist, you know, racial justice perspective that we're trying to, to bring to these books, there's another one out there that's, you know, fluffier or more comedic or, or or more want. in depth, you know, like because I, true. you know, we've had some people, you know, say that we haven't, we're not going far enough, which is, yep, you know, we come at it from our specific perspective. We're obviously coming at it at, you know, like you're saying, a little more feminist, more, you know, different viewpoints, trying to think about this through the lens of what we're learning and experiencing in 2021 and 2020 last year. Um, But there are definitely people who, you know, would like to dive even deeper. And that's not necessarily something that we feel we're well equipped to do. And that's not exactly Mm -hmm. what we wanted to this podcast to be. But like you said, there, there's sort of the whole spectrum. So we understand we might not be for everybody, but this is the way that we want to experience these books and dive deeper and talk about them. Yeah. Um, wow, that got heavy really quickly. <laughs> so can we shift back to talk about um, the parents of our child stars in this book? Because I really appreciated, again, how awesome Jesse's parents are and also how mm-hmm. great Derek's mom is. Like, I'm really, really glad we don't get any, like, stage mom situations here. Like, 
everybody's great, which is obviously maybe not realistic for having an eight-year-old who was, you know, a, a model and commercial actor in Connecticut and then moving to L.A. So I don't know. I, I just wanted to touch on that because Jesse's parents in particular, I know we've we've talked about them in prior books and just how supportive they are and how, like, smart they are in dealing mm-hmm. with Jesse. Like, in I think in this book and definitely in prior Jesse books, you know, she'll have, like, an issue and she'll be sort of talking herself through it and she wants her parents to give her an answer. Usually it's um, Mrs. Ramsey. And Mrs. Ramsey, like, asks her questions and gets her to think about things in her own way and figure things out for herself. And I I'll have to, I don't – I think I quote, put, pulled the quote. But, like, she basically says, like, you know, parents are so good at, like, making you figure things out on your, on your own even when you just want them to give you the answer. And it's just – I just really love Jessie's parents so much. And her dad, like, makes corny jokes to loosen her up when she's going to her auditions and, like – I, I I really think that the Ramseys are my favorite parents in this book series, including kids they babysit for or any of the girls' parents. I really love them. I totally agree. I found the quote because I highlighted it as well. She goes, parents, doesn't it seem backwards that they always want to make decisions for you when you don't want them to? Like, no, you can't stay out past 9 p.m. or no, you can't get your ears pierced. But when you might actually want them to go ahead and tell you what to do what do they say? It's up to you. Just let me know. (laughs) And I, that's such a, I vividly remember that feeling. Mm -hmm. And I mean, let's be honest. I still feel that way sometimes, not necessarily just with my parents, but in general, there are, you know, big decisions. I've got a pretty big life decision on my, on my plate at the moment. And there is certainly a part of me that just wants to be like, okay, Kate, just tell me what to do yeah. and I'll do it. And <laughs> Somebody because... make the decision for me because I don't want to have to make – well, especially when it's something hard, like a big life decision, like what you're trying to figure out. Like if it goes poorly, you want to be able to point to that other person and say, why mm-hmm. did you tell me to do that? This was a terrible idea. And if you have to make the decision yourself, you I mean, not that you would blame yourself, but like you can't blame someone else. It's just sort of like I made this choice and now I have to – proceed and figure out my next steps. This book in particular, and that aspect of it really linked to a lot of what I talk about in class. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's a concept called maximizers and satisfizers. Do you know, have you heard of this? I have no idea what you're talking about. (laughs) Okay. So very, very briefly, maximizers are people who are obsessed with getting all the information, having all of the choices and getting the absolute best, the absolute right decision. Satisfizers are people who are looking to make a, basically a good enough decision. Mm-hmm. And that really, for Jesse here in this, I was seeing that sort of play out. She definitely is, was tending toward that maximizer attitude where she wanted everything to just be, here's how it is, here's how it's handled, this is right, there is no shades of gray, there's no... She doesn't have a lot of space for the idea that things may not work out exactly as she planned, and that's okay too, mm-hmm. which, again, is a very childlike view that I still sometimes take. But it was just it was just fascinating to me, and I fully agree that her parents are just the most awesome, um, and, and they are so – the level, like you said, that they know her. Mm-hmm. Her dad in particular, when uh, he's talking to Mallory, who's all of a sudden started to get nervous about Jesse actually moving to L.A., and it would have been very easy for him to just say, you know, we're not moving to L.A. Don't worry about <laughs> right. that. But instead, he not only 
know Jessie well enough to know that she was using that as a distraction to avoid looking at what she really, really wants, as well as to not downplay Mallory's fears or concerns mm-hmm. or treat her like, you're a dumb little kid, we're not actually going anywhere. So I, um, I did really appreciate that. I have to admit, I did not think as much about Derek's mom, but the, the points that you were making are really, really true. I, I think she is pretty awesome. That The fact that, I mean, how many horror stories do we hear of mm-hmm. parents of child stars, you know, buying into that lifestyle, taking the money, pushing the kids for ways that they don't, things that they don't necessarily want. I mean, um, the there was a documentary about child stars on HBO mm-hmm. relatively recently that um, was actually directed by Alex Winters from uh, Bill and Ted. And it was good. I wish it had gone a little deeper. I wish we had had yeah. like an eight-episode series. But that was a pretty pretty common theme. And and I really didn't think about it while I was reading. But as you were talking, I was like, yeah, she really does go out of her way to ensure that they have as normal a childhood mm-hmm. as possible. Uh, Jesse calls out in particular, and uh, so do a couple other kids, that, wow, it's just a house. And right. It's messy and lived in. And, uh, you know, this kid is, if he's on a show that literally everyone is watching, they were probably had some big money coming in from that mm-hmm. and could have been working nonstop. And instead, she takes the time to move them back to Stony Brook to put him back into regular school as an attempt to keep him as normal as possible. So I thank you for pointing that out for me. Yeah. Well, and I think the other thing that really struck me about Mrs. Masters is like, you really get the sense that like, if Derek was like, I don't want to do this anymore, she would a hundred percent be like, great. We're staying in Stony Brook Mm -hmm. forever. Like you don't have to do anything you don't want to do. Like you were saying, like there are definitely stories and we've all heard them of countless child stars where you know, they're forced to work because they have now become the sole breadwinner for their entire family. And like, no, you don't get to be a kid. You don't get to make these choices. Like you're doing this because you have to. And like, I really appreciated. And it. I think Jesse says at one point, like Mrs. Masters basically has a full-time job running Derek's career, which obviously that would take a lot of work. He's got a lot of things on his plate. He obviously just booked this TV movie that he's going back to LA for. But like, she definitely has the right, mindset about him being a child star is like he wants to do this he's good at it he's enjoying it let's go for it and we're going to support him but like I also want my kid to be normal and normal that's that's a bad way of saying it but like to not have just that child star lifestyle like to also just go to school play with kids in the neighborhood not live in some opulent mansion just live in a you know a normal house in Stony Brook and have this, you know, regular life that isn't extraordinary in any way, which I I just really appreciated. I also really appreciated, I think it was the second audition. So Jesse has to go through three callback auditions for anyone who has not specifically read this book in the last week. Um, So she has to go through three callbacks before she finally is cast in the core of Swan Lake. But at the second audition, um, Jesse's going to be babysitting for Derek and Todd afterwards. So um, Jesse is picked up by Mrs. Masters and Derek and Todd and they come in and see her audition and they are standing near this like clique of bitchy ballet dancers who are commenting on everybody's you know performances and skills and what they could do better and what they could do worse and 
obviously Derek and his mom have been at a lot of auditions over the years. And so they are listening to these girls and like Derek writes down phonetically the notes <laughs> that these girls are saying. And he yes. like spills them back to Jesse. And she's like, how do you know what a tour jeté is? And he's like, and it's spelled like all crazy because he doesn't know that it's French. But, um, and uh, you know, they're talking about it in the car and, you know, Mrs. Master says, you know, sometimes those obnoxious girls have some, you know, smart thoughts. Like, obviously, you don't want to hang out with them. But like, if they're going to be spilling the beans on things you could do better, like, why not take advantage of that? And so it's just fun that like, they use some of their insider knowledge of uh, the audition process to like help Jesse get ahead in her next audition. I yeah, I totally love that. I think we can fully credit Mrs. Masters for the fact that our predictions about how Derek was the super brat were completely off. Mm-hmm. That I think that his attitude about, you know, it's he specifically says, yuck, it's just work. And Jesse's like, oh, it's not fun. And he goes, well, it can be, but it's also a job. Right. And uh, I, that can, that attitude, I think, can be attributed to her. I'm also very curious. They don't mention a father anywhere. Um, like, just but they don't mention him not having a father. So yeah. I thought that was an interesting lack of engagement with that. Or Yeah, the fact I that it's know. not I, commented on at all is sort of interesting because usually in these books you get that backstory about, you know, who the parents are at least or there's at least a passing reference, you know, because like even Jenny Prezioso's mom is referenced, but like, yeah. or a dad. Like we don't actually like really get anything about him, but like, we get a lot from Mrs. Prezioso, but we, we don't actually get any real interaction with him. But, like, we hear references to him and he's around at least. But, like, or in the Barrett situation, obviously their dad shows up occasionally. But, like, you get that sort of backstory of, like, here's the family situation. And with Derek's family, it's very much just, like, here's his mom. End of story. Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> is where's his dad? Where's Todd's dad? Like, do they have the same dad? Like, are they divorced? Did he die? Does he still live in LA? Because that's where his full-time job is. And they just come back to Stony Brook when they can. I don't know. (laughs) Right. I think that, I mean, we obviously didn't need to get into some, there's a lot going on in this book. So bringing in family dynamics in that way would probably be a bridge too far. But I mean, that's an easy fix. Like you said, there are millions of reasons or things that they could, or they could have just mentioned that, you know, his parents moved back or whatever it is right. to just stop it from feeling so it just felt a glaring that in its absence. Um, the other thing I just wanted to say about that too, is we do want to acknowledge that the whole, we keep saying just a house in Stony Brook, that, that, you know, <laughs> right. that that's, that is likely um, probably, you know, the nicest house that far nicer than the houses I grew up in. Um, and, you know, we we talk all the time about you know Christy being a millionaire or not Christy but <laughs> yeah Christy Watson herself being, is a millionaire millionaire well she's got a lot of great ideas <laughs> exactly but like the fact that they live in a mansion and it sort of struck me this time that uh, it, this is not really important to the plot at all but it, it, because we were talking about Derek and movie stars and fame and all of that you know they always just say Watson is a millionaire but millionaire is can be from one million to 99,900,000. Nine, I can't do math. 999,000. No. Thank you. 999 million. 999 million. And that, that's a huge range. Right. So I just, I mean, for a kid, I get that. 
and I'm just I'm curious. What are Watson's financials? What's the property value? <laughs> I would like <laughs> to especially... see your uh, accounting financial exactly. statements. Because in in a town like Stony Brook, where uh, all of these girls are solidly upper middle class, mm-hmm. you know, nobody struggles for money. I, I think that that comes up in the Pikes book um, at some point that you know they have to be a little bit more frugal, but. They have eight goddamn kids, so, you know, even being upper middle class has its limitations. But so it, that that just leads me to believe that Watson's millionaire status is probably on the higher end, closer to the number that you can say it high <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, w- I would agree with that. I think Watson is not just a one million millionaire. He's definitely got multiple digits of millions <laughs> in the bank. Right. Yeah, I, I did think that that was interesting. Like, oh, it's just a normal house because... Stony Brook is not a quote-unquote normal community based on everything we've talked about. So normal for Stony Brook is what those kids meant. They didn't say it, but it was implied. Exactly. One of my big themes and takeaways was be careful what you wish for. Fame isn't always what it's cracked up to be. And I I think we've mostly covered that in in the rest of the conversation. But I do appreciate that that was the was the track that they took for a kid's book that, you know, and especially, again, more subtle, but really appreciated is when Derek, from his perspective, it was super easy. You just call them up and they put you in a TV, like you do start doing a couple commercials and you, you know, end up on a TV show. Mm -hmm. Because at eight years old, that's probably his concept of it and likely how it probably happened for him. Those are the stories we typically hear around child actors. Somebody says, what a cute baby in a grocery store in New York. And the next thing you know, they're on Full House. Yeah. Um, I don't know if that that's how the Olsen twins. But it, it was the first thing that sprang to mind. Anyway, I appreciated that the book sort of looked a little bit more about the reality of that when Jesse was contemplating giving up ballet for modeling or acting that she also had this concept like I think she specifically says what do you how hard could it be you just sit there and smile and when she's talking to the agents it's far more complicated than that they want professional headshots they need you know resumes and and business backgrounds and I thought that was a really interesting contrast to Jesse's supernatural ballet talent. Um, I mean, we talk often about how the ways in which these 13-year-old and 11-year-old kids don't often act their age because they're modeling behavior. And that is often a good thing. But in the cases like this... Where she gets cast in a professional production of Swan Lake in the core when she's probably like... I mean, she looks like a child. I don't care how talented Mm -hmm. a dancer she is. Like, I'm... If the rest of the the people trying out for this are, like, adults, it's going to look weird to have just, like, one random child <laughs> in the core of Swan Lake. Because, like, it's not like they're doing a show. Like, the Nutcracker would make sense. I was you just going to say. Like, yep. there are children in that. So, like, a very talented child dancer would be perfectly cast in the Nutcracker. Swan Lake is not really a child production and yeah I it's just it's just weird that that would be the show that they're doing that it makes sense for Jesse to be auditioning for because even her dance teacher is like you're very gifted you should try out for this and it's like okay but why would they cast her she's a kid I like mm-hmm. I and maybe I just don't know enough about professional ballet 
I mean, I, I enjoy watching it, and I remember going to see it as a kid and being like, that's amazing. I wish I could do that. I would never have been able to even contemplate that in a million years because I am no. not a dancer in any way, shape, or form. But, like, <laughs> I don't believe that a 11-year-old child would be cast in the core of a professional adult Swan Lake production. Particularly if it is a um, a, a troupe that is as... I guess. Well, she basically uh, says it's like off, off Broadway. Like that's exactly what I was trying to get yeah. to. Yeah, and and that is uh, that's just ridiculous. And you're right. I, it would be such an easy fix to make it the Nutcracker or some other show that specifically has a kid in it. Um, you know, there are lots of Broadway shows that have you know maybe not a whole group of kids. Some of them certainly do, mm-hmm. but um, you know, it's pretty not uncommon to have like a single child or a couple of children. Uh, one of our friends that was actually one of her first theater jobs was wrangling one of said children mm-hmm. in a Broadway touring production. So it it would have been a, a very easy thing to do to make it, you know, so that she wasn't competing with actual grown adults and professional dancers and that she was, you know, more on her level. I, it, it, was, it was such a weird choice to me. Mm-hmm. And, in a way that really detracts from the overall message of it. Because as, you know, a theater kid, and I know we both are, I, I was going to ask how you handled the stress and pressure of auditions because I was very much like Jesse, you know, waiting with bated breath, calling every two seconds to see if the list was posted. I um, I remember my freshman year of high school, I was sick. And so I had I sent my mom to the school to read the list, and I was just like... <laughs> Because I couldn't wait a day to to feel mm-hmm. better and find out, um, so that I very much related to. Uh, what about you? How did how did you handle that pressure? So I was never. Um, you are a much more talented actor. Like you were actually in shows, like as a star. <laughs> like I'm, I'm remembering when we were in college, you were in, what was it? The three sisters. And you were like one of the sisters, you know, like I was never good enough to do that. So like I would try out for stuff knowing that I would likely be in the chorus or like a supporting part. So I was less concerned about it. If that makes sense. Like I knew I was good enough to be in it somewhere, but I was never holding out hope that I was going to be the star. That makes total sense. And that's, I, I think you're not giving yourself enough credit. You are <laughs> very talented. And oh gosh, your voice is just, ugh, sorry, we had to get a little <laughs> gushy there from it. And, um, but I, I do think that you're right. There's an expectation versus um, a difference there, I guess I, I should say. A difference in expectation in what you are hoping mm-hmm. for as an outcome. And uh, in, in some good and bad ways, I you know, again, you're giving me too much credit. I was very much, uh, let's just say I never entertained the idea that I was going to go try out for a professional production. (laughs) Um, but, but in, in the way that I did hope that I, you know, would, would get a lead or, and there were certainly times, especially with the musicals, um, at UD that I didn't get cast at all. Mm -hmm. Um, and that felt, you know, as someone who did have the lead in high school shows was very, a big blow to the ego and uh, so anyway yeah I think that's a good that's a good point but I was very much like Jesse in that I mean I first of all like I said never contemplated that I thought I should be this ballet thing doesn't work out I should just model um (laughs) and I 
I definitely was the type that like I can't think about it too hard if I if I admit how badly I want this that it's that much more likely that I'm going to get crushed so I have to pretend that you know I don't really want it that badly it doesn't mm-hmm. mean that much to me and and that's a that's really astute I think it really is an expectation thing and that's goes back to the fact that you know she's now getting cast in these productions in a weird way that's actually unhealthy for her mm-hmm. because it is going to set an expectation of how easy this is going forward and you know, even more so than other arts, I think ballet is particularly difficult mm-hmm. um, and cutthroat. And, you know, we saw a little bit of that, like you said, with the Mean Girls. But, you know, ballerinas also have a really pretty short shelf life in terms of, of other artistic aspirations. So, uh, and anyway, it, it just was odd messaging to me that she was, <laughs> that all of them are so amazing at whatever yeah. they do. Well, I think the other thing, you know, talking about the fact that Jessie's, in this book, she's distracting herself by saying, oh, I could just be a model and an actress if I don't get this show. And, like, contrasting that with the fact that, like, this is basically, like, a Broadway-level performance. So for mm-hmm. an 11-year-old to be like, if I don't get this, I'm done. Like, you're yeah. 11. You know, like, I I wish... and But then the fact that she does get it, like you were saying, like, it's just... I don't know. It, it's a little bit frustrating, but it's also like this is a book for kids and it's supposed to be like fun and light and like you don't want Jesse to fail. So yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I'm a little all over the place with it. I'm I'm glad that she is so good. And but like you said, yeah, our our girls are instantly amazing at everything that is their like defining feature. Like Christy's great at being a leader and coming up with great ideas. Um, yep. Claudia's an amazing artist. Like, Jesse's the best ballet dancer you've ever seen. Like, Mallory's a good writer. You know, I, I, I don't have to go through the whole list. But, like, everybody has their, like, one thing that is, like, they can't fail, basically. And I think it's a little – reading this as an adult, it's a little frustrating that it's just – because it does sort of model that behavior for kids. Like, if you find the one thing that you're passionate about, you're going to be amazing at it. And it's, like – you might not be. And that's uh, that's hard to hear. And maybe that's why it's not in here because it's a book for kids and you don't want to teach right. that too early. I think that was my biggest problem with Monsters University is like <laughs> <laughs> you can do whatever you want unless you can't. But, oh, I guess you can like sort of get past it even if you're not good at something. Like not always. Like I don't know. Yeah. And I, it's such like a pessimistic thing to say. But like I want kids to want things and want to try. But like I don't want kids to be set up for like utter disaster if they're somehow not able to succeed in something that they love. And I, I don't know if there's a way to teach that in babysitters club or not. It's probably not. And so I, I shouldn't be expecting it to be here, but like it is a little bit frustrating that these girls are like automatically the best at whatever they're good at. Yeah. I mean, I mean, failure is a fact of life, Mm -hmm. whether, I mean, we certainly don't like it. I was going to say whether we like it or not. Right. No, (laughs) nobody wants to fail. Like, that's why it's failure. Like, it's bad. Failing is not great. And some people have a better reaction Mm -hmm. to it and use that failure to propel them to other things. But even those people are still not like excited that they failed at what they set out (laughs) to do. And I, I haven't really thought of this before, but along those same lines, you mentioned each girl has a one thing that they're really passionate about and amazing about. And that is kind of um, 
not great messaging mm-hmm. either because there are plenty of people in this world who don't have a passion, who really struggle with what is my meaning, what is my purpose, what is what do I want out of life, what do I want to be? I, I mean, adults too are still asking that question, mm-hmm. what do I want to be when I grow up? And to have, I, I wish that would have been portrayed a little bit with at least one of the girls really sort of struggling with that who am I? What do I want? I don't have anything that I'm, you know, the absolute best at. So how do I find meaning elsewhere? Again, we're, we're probably asking way too much for <laughs> right. a, a series aimed at five to 10 to, you know, 13 year olds. But it, it, it is just sort of a, I think, missed opportunity a little bit. Mm-hmm. And who knows, maybe as we get further along, someone will struggle with that and someone will, you know, I don't know. But there, it just, Christy in particular, like you said, she had this great idea and then started a very successful business. Right. And if it were that if it were that easy, you know, all of the stories we hear about people who started their own version of the club as kids, you know, none of those ended with <laughs> with uh, a huge clientele and a, a years long endeavor that was super successful. Um, well, not even like ended wrong, with a, a great huge clientele. Like immediately had a huge clientele. Exactly. Like oh, now we're success in the first book. Anyway, sorry for I mean, interrupting. They, <laughs> no, you were. That's exactly true. Like they, they even mentioned in this book how they, um, Jesse wants to talk about Derek, but she can't talk about it during the meeting because we have to stay focused on club business. And the phone rings often enough that for that half an hour that that's okay. Mm-hmm. That they're not just sitting there staring at each other like waiting for the phone to ring. Like my babysitters club meetings <laughs> often went, and uh, it, yeah, that's that's kind of kind of wild. So. Um, I know we want them to be successful, and it does, you know, one of my favorite memes is Disney gave me unrealistic expectations about hair, (laughs) Um, that, you know, there are some unrealistic expectations about how if you care about something, you're immediately going to be good at it and the best at it and successful, and uh, that's just sadly not always the case. Yeah, so I don't I'm we sort of touched on the bullying. I know we're already over an hour, so maybe we don't want to talk too much about bullying, but I think it's relevant to sort of note that the kids in Derek's class are immediately terrible to him other than Nikki. So all the girls like him immediately, obviously. Nikki Pike is nice to him cuz he sort of knew him before Derek went to Hollywood, um, but all of the boys immediately hate him and make fun of him for having to wear makeup as part of his job. And I don't know. I'm not really sure where I'm going with this, but like, I just, it's sort of interesting that we only really, I mean, I guess we can't hear about it firsthand because Jesse's not there to witness it, but like hearing about what's happening at his school is like, it sucks. (laughs) You know, like, I feel so bad for Derek you know, he he's already feeling uncomfortable about like going to this going back to this school when he's been gone and he is now, you know, a star and people know him, you know, randomly in the world. But like, I don't know, I'm, I would imagine if someone that I was in class with when I was eight was a star and came back, I would probably be jealous, too. I mean, obviously, most of this is probably mm-hmm. jealousy, but I don't think I would bully anyone and you know pour food on them or whatever I, I can, I'm having trouble remembering what things Derek did as John and what things were done right. to him but like the stuff he does too is like 
he like dumps food all over a kid. Didn't he like tie somebody's shoelaces yes. to their chair? Like that's really bad. <laughs> like yeah. So yeah, I just I don't know. I I don't know that I have anything more thoughtful or constructive to say other than that sucked. <laughs> yes. I it, I did, and I I agree with you fully. I chalked it really up to jealousy, and um, certainly in the '80s, the idea of a boy wearing makeup and the gay panic that was so often that really stood out for me mm-hmm. as well. I was like, oh, oh, good, right, little shitheads, and kids are little shitheads sometimes, right, and and they, uh, you know, there's a reason that a lot of child actors don't go back to regular school, quote unquote, regular, um, because of that very reason, because there's, you know, jealousy and, and, you know, it it changes from eight to preteen to teenager, how that bullying shows up. I think it gets more subtle. Um, but yeah, I, I think you're exactly right that it, it did seem a little like, and again, this is likely due to the fact that these books are 140, 150 pages long on my phone. So they're not, you know, they're not tomes. And there's not really a lot of space to explore, you know, people's motivations and what they're actually doing. But it did go from zero to a thousand really quickly mm-hmm. there. Um, other random thoughts. Oh, I just, I mentioned Karen earlier. Uh, I, I, again, don't have anything super profound to say other than she, uh, more than anyone, got bit by the acting bug and by, more more accurately, the stardom bug. She yes. was determined to be a star. And, oh boy, it is unfortunate the more and more we learn about Karen, just how much I'm like, mm, maybe I'm not a Christy, maybe I'm a Karen. <laughs> <laughs> because I... I was always putting on plays as a little kid. I was roping in adults to watch them. I mean, as far back, we moved to Cincinnati when I was five. But when I was still living in Toledo, our neighbor's name was Mr. Hampoo or something like that because I always called him Mr. Shampoo. (laughs) And this poor, like, middle-aged man, I used to, like, drag him into my parents' house and make him watch plays (laughs) on my (laughs) – that I put on on my, like – the the fireplace you know the brick in front of it and just uh, like what a saint and actually I say middle aged I have zero concept of how old he actually was I was you know three and four five at the oldest so he could have been twenty two I doubt I doubt that but either way yeah if 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 you're out there Mr Shampoo uh, just you're a saint I highly doubt he's listening to our podcast that would or be remembers super that I weird if he was <laughs> <laughs> very much so but yes uh, I definitely definitely saw a lot of myself and Karen. Uh, hopefully not quite as entitled, but I'm a little, I, yeah, likely I was. So my only other random thought was, um, I don't particularly like breakfast food, but I kind of want to have a breakfast party. That seemed like super Same. fun, especially given that their breakfast party was like cereal and donuts, which are like the two breakfast foods I actually like. So maybe that's why I want a breakfast party. But I also thought it was funny um, related to the breakfast party. Claudia calls Christy and asks if she should get chocolate or coconut donuts, which one would kids like best? And I was like, there is no way that any of those children would prefer coconut donuts to chocolate donuts. I had that exact same thought. I highlighted that as well. I was like, okay, so I've been praising Claudia for her emotional intelligence and then this bonehead question out of absolutely nowhere. Especially when it's like 
her wheelhouse, junk food. Exactly. Like, Claudia, you should have way more of your finger on the pulse as to what donuts would be preferred. <laughs> Although, also, from the don- from the the breakfast party, Jesse's helping to serve food, and some kid takes three donuts, and Jesse yells out, like, Claudia, I've got, I found your soulmate over here. Or not, maybe not <laughs> yes. soulmate, but, like, kindred spirit. Like, I was like, yep, that's also my kindred spirit. I would take three donuts instead of anything healthy. <laughs> 1,000. I loved that. That was so cute. Um, and it did feel that was one of the instances where this book did feel really right. Mm-hmm. Is that's such a well observed aspect of friendship that like sort of gentle ribbing yep. and like knowing uh, what what you can tease somebody about and and I thought that was really fun too. Yeah, I loved it. Um, I, yeah, I don't have any really other random thoughts either. We they all kind of got talked about as we you know meandered our way through some of those plot points. I'm I'm just more surprised that we had this much to talk about with such a fluffy book. Mm-hmm. Um, but what about fashion? Was there any fashion of note? Um, not really. Let me just scroll yeah. down. So there's obviously the reference to Christie's jeans, turtleneck, sweater, and sneakers, um, mm-hmm. as always. Although Jesse does point out, I think I'd faint if I ever saw her in a dress. Um, Claudia has the only real description. She's also a wild dresser. At that meeting, she was wearing a bright pink T-shirt, a short red flouncy skirt, and underneath the skirt she had on black footless tights that she had rolled up to mid-calf. And that is a pretty non-extreme Claudia, and and certainly we don't get any mention of accessories right. or what she was doing with her hair. I think that was one of the first times I went, huh, yeah. maybe this is a um, a ghost-written book because it just seemed pretty light on that. Well, and especially because with Jesse and Mallory in the past, we've seen how sort mm-hmm. of in awe they are of all of the the older girls, and when it, and how sort of maybe not jealous, but like. They're aspirational when it comes to the fashion. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it's not even just Claudia. You know, it's also even Marianne, I think, in the last Mallory book. She was, like, talking about what a great outfit Marianne was wearing. So the fact that there's basically no descriptions here is a little bit strange because we have seen Jessie really be sort of inspired by those girls in the past and, like, think about what they're wearing and comment on it in a more specific and detailed way. And this is very not descriptive at all. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah, so I, I just – something to note. I also, since we haven't checked in on in a while, my yarn wall has gotten pretty boring because they just fully do not mention time at all. Mm-hmm. We have – we have we are deep in some kind of weird time vortex that, you know, doesn't exist unless it is uh, integral to the plot in some way. You know, if we're talking about Halloween or a dance or a holiday or something and the rest of the time it's just sort of – forever mild I guess yeah you know they that I really I thought about that because I've been watching a lot of you know teen shows in quarantine as that are teen shows 90s teen shows mm-hmm. and early 2000s um as comfort food and that's one of the things that I remember my mom complaining about with Dawson's Creek she's like they live on the east coast and they're always just like wandering around you know with a you know winter it's just sort of a light jacket mm-hmm. they sex in the city in New York they they never you know, make any effort to bundle up the way that would absolutely be necessary. So um, it's following in a grand tradition. Definitely. (laughs) Okay. So I guess, do we need to talk about our predictions for the next book? I have a feeling we're both going to be pretty spot on. Absolutely. Uh, Next book is Welcome Back, Stacey. And gee, I wonder what could happen in that book. I'm, I'm questioning whether she might I don't know, move back to Stony Brook, perhaps? 
Maybe. Um, <laughs> I'm going to be curious, though, because uh, I do re- remember that this move was prompted by um, the divorce mm-hmm. rather than her dad's move. And it was, you know, that was seated in previously, as we called out, that uh, her mom was really missing Stony Brook. She liked it a lot better there. Her dad, not so much. So um, I wonder if this is going to be more about, you know, how weird it is to come back to a place that you used to live. Uh, Jesse says specifically in this book about how she's living in Stacy's old house, mm-hmm. um, which is would be trippy. And how much is going to be, you know, we've talked about divorced parents before. Specifically, you talked about the Barretts earlier. But it'd be interesting to see that play out for one of our main girls. So I'm, I'm going to make my prediction uh, a little bit more specific and say that this is the book we sort of talk about what happens when... Um, families break up. Like mm-hmm. even Dawn, you know, her parents were divorced, but that that seemed to have happened mostly prior to her coming into the story, and or at least they seem pretty settled with that part of it. Obviously, the the Jeff stuff um, talked about you know split parenting and and split families, etc. But but she didn't really have any like thoughts around the divorce mm-hmm. at all. So I'm, I'm wondering if we're going to get some of that in this. Yeah, I was going to say, I have the expectation that most of this book is going to occur in New York. Like she's not going to, oh, she's not going to move back to Stony Brook until the end, or it's going to be like, she's about to move back. So, because, uh, right. We, we've sort of seen the, the seeds being planted for, um, the inevitable divorce of the McGills and Stacy and her mom coming back to Stony Brook. But because we haven't actually seen that happen, I don't think we're going to start this book with like, well, my parents just got divorced. I'm moving back to Stony Brook. And then the rest of the book, they're in Stony Brook. I think it's going to be, we're going to see more of, like you were saying, the the sort of process of a divorce and what it's like to go through that. And like, my guess is they'll probably be part of the conversation is like Stacy figuring out where she wants to live. You know, I, I, mm-hmm. I'm sort of throwing that in that just sort of came to me because like that I think is especially for someone who's 13. And obviously, you and I have never had to go through their parents getting divorced, particularly or especially even as a child. But I feel like a lot of at least in popular culture, a lot of times when a teenager's parents get divorced, there's more of a conversation about child um, custody as opposed to just, mm-hmm. like, this is how it is. Like, it's more of a conversation including the kid, it's, at least if it's sort of a, a more amicable divorce, just taking everyone's thoughts and feelings into it. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if that was part of the conversation or part of the story is, you know, Stacy figuring out what she wants to do and how she wants to react to her parents divorcing and then ultimately making the decision to move with her mom to Stony Brook. Yeah, I I would actually um now that you say that I'm I'm hopeful that we get some discussion of that because mm-hmm. even if it is amicable and it, I think it does happen sometimes even in contentious divorces, sometimes even more probably that they ask the kid directly, you know, if the parents are, can't figure it out themselves, mm-hmm. who do you want to live with? And oh man, I can't imagine at 13, let alone younger that you know, having to stand in front of a court and basically declare which parent you like most. Right. Oof. That's, that's, can't be fun. So yeah, I think that pretty much wraps up our predictions for next week. Yep. I think so. Um, okay. So any final club business this week? Why don't you remind us 
and our listeners where they can find us on the interwebs. Definitely. So you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Generation BSC or email us if you have far more things to say than can fit in the number of characters available there. Um, you can email us at generationbsc at gmail.com. And um, if you are so inclined, Lauren was just a guest this week or this past week on um, for the Friends in Your Ears podcast. So you should definitely check her out over there. I think she had some interesting conversations with other podcast hosts, and I, I'm sure you would all enjoy that conversation as well. So with that, I'm Kate Vlasic. And I'm Lauren Hunter. And this episode of Generation BSC is now adjourned. Say hello to your friends.